And I just wanted to give it a platform that would be fun, that would be... Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today is Author Conversations. I have Ariana Warsaw Van Roch today, and she wrote an instructional memoir called Declassified. Before I bring her on and do my spiel, I wanted to give you guys a micro backstory. I used to play the violin. I started through dental school when I was 25 and with studying and all that, I didn't really have much time to practice, but I managed. And then when I moved back home, I tried to pick it up again and it's a beautiful instrument, but super crazy hard to play. Well, for someone like me who didn't practice, what did you expect? Anyway, I got a new instructor, joined a community orchestra, and yes, I was the weakest link there. And then life got away from me, and here we are reading and podcasting. That's the backstory. The second backstory is that I like to read memoirs, but then I was getting sick and tired of reading memoirs. When publicists offered me memoirs, I invariably ended up saying no. I was like, wow, I have enough contacts to have the gumption to say no because you don't want the podcast author conversations to dry out either. So here I am, memoired out, haven't touched my violin in a few years, and I get a letter about this book called Declassified. And yes, it was a memoir, but I was curious enough and I thought, you know what, this memoir I'll read and do an author conversation with. Because the whole violin thing just connected me to the book. Although you can be music clueless and still love the book because it will take you through a musical journey. Before I bring Ariana, please support my little podcast. You can support me in two ways. One is by buying credit bundles from an awesome audiobook company called Libro FM please use my code name, LLTB Podcast. The other way you can help me is by buying me a coffee. It's not a little coffee. You can make a smaller, very large donation to help support me. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB Podcast. I really appreciate your support. One more little tidbit before I do the author intro and get right into it. I've never done this on any of my other author conversations, but this one, I'm compelled to make an exception. At the very end of the podcast, after the finishing music and all, I'm going to read the quick publicity summary sheet that was sent to me about the book Declassified, so you'll get a good feel for what the book is all about. And now, Ariana Warsaw Fanrock earned a bachelor degree and master of music from the Juilliard School and has performed as a classical violinist in top venues around the world, including Carnegie Hall, Boston Symphony Hall, and the Ravinia, Verbier, La Hala Summer Festival, and Aspen Music Festivals. She has toured with such legendary artists as jazz trumpeter Chris Boddy and Sir James Galway. Declassified is her first book, and here's Ariana Warsaw Fanroch, the author of Declassified. Ariana, welcome to the Living a Life Through Books podcast. I am excited Thanks to so have you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sure. So 
tell me about your book. Like, tell me, first of all, tell me about why you wrote it and then about the book. Um, so, I mean, this book is really the culmination of my whole life. I feel like, I mean, my, so first of all, my mom is a writer. She's, she's not a published author, but she wrote articles when she was in school. She's an English teacher. Um, she's, and she has a novel. It's just not published. And I read it and it's brilliant. And um, she really passed on her love of writing and reading to me. And my dad's a pianist and he's been teaching me about, you know, classical music my whole life. So this is really like, I feel like it's equally their book. But also then throughout my training, when I was at Juilliard, I really, I started to feel a little bit, I don't know, I think a lot of my colleagues and I, we felt frustrated with the way that the industry was going in, in different ways. So um, there is a lot of innovation happening, especially now, but it's also difficult because you have so many great players and some of the opportunities have been drying up. I think recently they're coming back and there's more interest, but at least when I was at Juilliard, uh, there was this sort of sense of doom that we were trying our best, but uh, there were just so few spots. And even back then, I remember talking to my professors. I had this one professor in the business of music class and I kept brainstorming with him, like, could I write a, a blockbuster movie and like about a competition and I'll put in all these cool threads so that it's like super accessible and people can see the other side of being a musician. And, and I mean, that was really unreasonable, at least back then right. for me to be thinking about. But um, but I, you know, I, I did feel like there was this other side to the industry that people just weren't getting to see. And also there, yeah, it just didn't really feel like there was a platform we're talking about music in a, in a more casual way, in a way that felt more inclusive and a bit more fun, the way that we would talk about it as conservatory students. So um, yeah, this is really, it's, it's kind of already, it was not as a book, but as an idea, as a mission, there was something already brewing back then. But yeah, then more recently, uh, as I was performing and I, I got to a point, uh, which I talk about in the book, where it just started to feel like for a number of reasons, it might not be the right path for me going forward as a performer. But I still eventually wanted to find a way to honor my love of music and talk about music and do something with music. Uh, I had there was a manager in Japan I, I knew really well, and he used to talk about how we all serve the god of music, you know. And so I feel like this is like a way that I eventually found that you know I thought about what I what I love to do. I talk a lot. Oh no, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. So who is this book written for? Is it for yourself to honor your parents, like you said? Or you're like, no, I really, Shanaz, I knew I was going to talk to you on the podcast. I wrote this book for you. <laughs> and I totally. knew you were I mean, it is. It's for you. Really. Oh, oh, wow. Great. Thank you. <laughs> no, but, but it really is. I mean, so, so of course, like I, I'd be lying if I said it was completely selfless as an endeavor. Of course, there's a lot of me in the book and probably there's something about me that makes me attracted to things like performing and writing, you know, obviously I feel a need to express things. So yes, there's, there's that, but mostly I really feel like it's for the music, which I love. And it's also for um, the, there are so many people who are interested in music, in classical music, who have the beginning of a relationship with it, but they don't really know where to turn. And a lot of the texts on music are 
a little overwhelming. They're sometimes they're either really clinical or, I mean, I'm sure there are great texts, but I just, I haven't found a book like this that fits into this box. And I wanted there to be a place where people could come if they were curious about music or even just curious about, you know, it's something that's around us all the time, this music in, in elevators, it's in movies. And even if you don't have a, a distinct, like an, an active interest in it, probably there are some people who would say, yeah, I could, I could learn some more about it, you know? And I just wanted to give it a platform that would be fun, that would be light and that I feel represents more what the actual vibe is of the music and not what is often presented to people. So yeah, it's for the people, you know, I have friends who are not musicians who come to me for recommendations, for listening recommendations. They have requested things like this. And again, it's just, I feel the music has been done a disservice by a lot of the way that the media handles it. And I want, I want the people who might be interested in it and this music to find each other. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Whenever people talk about music, it's, it's like goes over my head. I mean, I've tried to play the violin. Okay. Tried is the operative word. How old were you when you? Oh, I started when I was in my twenties, 25. And obviously you know how strings sound like when you start off at 25. It's great when you start off when you're three either. (laughs) That's what it sounds like at 25, except (laughs) apparently you're not, you know, you're, you can't do vibrato when you start off at a later age. Mm. I was able to get there. My violin instructor was like, wow, I haven't had older students actually be able to even do a little bit of vibrato. So, but then it was just between everything I do. Mm. It just got too much and I haven't played the violin forever. But my husband's a trained musician, like he's an opera singer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like when he talks, he talks in a different language. You know, it's kind of like Latin and Greek to him, Uh, Mm -hmm. to me rather, not to him. Like It's like he's like, oh, yeah, movement number, this, blah, 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 this person, this person, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait. Did you just give me a password to something? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's that's, yeah. that's what it sounds like. Like you play, if you play a piece, he'd listen to it goes, oh yeah, this is, oh yeah, wait, let's see. This is so-and-so, this moon. I'm like, how do you people even know this stuff? It oh. all sounds the same to me, which was really great when you, you know, in your book, you were like, talk about really breaking it up and the different periods and like, no, these musics are different. Yeah, it, it absolutely. I mean, that classical music is, it's really not a real thing. It's just a convenient way for people to talk about hundreds of years of music. And, and also, because you mentioned the titles, I also have a section in the book where I decipher the titles because I find it also tremendously confusing. You know, I've, I've grown up with these titles, but they're so, they don't match the music at all. It's just, they're catalog numbers, right? It's a way right. of- it's out of necessity. It's not because the composers were like, oh, I really want my piece to be called Opus 28, number three. You know, it's like, right. It is confusing and off-putting. And I really also think another thing that I mentioned in the book is that I think one of the reasons that pieces like Fur Elise are so popular is because you can remember the name, right? It's like, you don't have to deal with the numbers. So I I feel you. Or Ode to Joy. Right. Ode to Joy, exactly. Right. Ode to Joy, which is actually, I mean, usually when we talk about it, we're talking about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, but it's, but 
again, we call it the O to joy because it's easier than remembering numbers and statistics. So uh, yeah, I wanted to be able to sort of unlock all of this hostility that's put out by the industry sometimes and let people in and see it in a more comfortable way. You know, what really blew my mind is I was um, reading the section on wedding music and graduation music. Like you said that there were options. (laughs) (laughs) You were like, well, you could do this or this or this. So for graduation, you could. I'm like, wait, no, there's (laughs) only one wedding music. (laughs) And there's only one graduation music that plays in every single graduation. (laughs) What do you mean? There are, it just blew my mind. I was kind of like, what? Yeah. Like, how does that even come about? Like, I mean, for me, my brain's just stuck. It just kind of, I'm in a do not compute mode because I am kind of like thinking of a world where, you know, we talk about, oh, today's graduation, we have this speaker, this is the keynote speaker. And to top it off, our music for this ceremony is going to be this. Like every graduation for every school is going to have its own. Obviously, they have their own keynote speaker. They're going to have their own music as a way to make themselves unique. But that's not what's going to happen because we have tradition. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and I, I also I also feel like this also ties into this Eine Kleine Nachtmusik that I sort of, I go after it a bit in the book. It's actually a great piece. It's not, you know, there's nothing against it, but it is just used way too much. There are so many, Mozart wrote so many pieces. I don't know why everyone always uses Eine Kleine Nachtmusik for everything. Um, I mean, it's catchy, yes, but Again, maybe the title, right? You can remember the title because it's even if it's in German, it's still words instead of these statistics. And yeah, I think that that's another thing in the book. There are these playlists. So I just wanted to give people the opportunity to see all of the different sounds that the repertoire encompasses and to be able to sample them to sort of like time jump through the different eras and compare those sounds and find the sound that fits for them. As you mentioned, you know, with graduations, with weddings, I mean, there's no reason just because, so people think, um, you know, of classical music at a wedding and they think it has to be super refined and super delicate, or they think, you know, really like emotional. And there are also really funky classical pieces that you could use for a processional if that's more your style. And, you know, it's also perfectly fine to use a piece that's not classical. It's just, I feel like people should know what the options are. And I I would like to, you know, I, I don't want to say I want to advertise for, for classical music, but advocate anyway for the, for the options. I actually have a question about memoir writing. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine wanted me to ask you this. So I'm just going to ask. Yeah. Um, well, one was, she says, why do you, why did you feel like your experience was worth sharing? I, mm. I think, I think what she means is your experience versus other Juilliard students or other musicians. Why, why your experience? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good question. And I know, you know, I also struggle with this because I think it's difficult for everyone. Everyone knows that all the other people in the world also have valid stories and they've lived really interesting experiences. And so in that sense, everyone should get to write a memoir. And I I think that, and now with, with of course, social media, then kind of 
it's possible for everyone to write a kind of memoir. But yeah, I for me, it all comes back to making classical music accessible. So if the idea is to humanize the industry, then what I can speak about is the way that I experienced it as a human. And I don't think that my experiences were more exciting or more upsetting or more beautiful than a lot of my colleagues, but I know that I, I know the way that I experienced them. And so they're the only ones that I can describe with accuracy. And um, I didn't see other people writing this book. So, you know, again, right. it's not, so it was more as a tool to, again, unlock a side of the industry that people hadn't seen before. And it's, it's um, a little uncomfortable for me in some ways when I, I just recorded my audiobook and it was very weird to read some of the things I wrote out loud. <laughs> well, it's sometimes very personal, you know, and you don't, and when you're writing, you feel pretty anonymous. It's just you and a computer and, you know, you think about people reading it, but it, it's an abstract concept. But when you're doing your audiobook, you have your director there and you have the, your recording engineer and they're right there with you. And so suddenly you're reading it to someone and um, there were parts where I got really emotional. I don't know if you read, there, there's a thread in it about um, someone that I lost. And yeah, that, Rex. Yeah, Rex, exactly. And that was just almost impossible to get through. We just had to do it in in like half sentences and, you know, sentences because it felt just much more powerful. Even, I mean, when I wrote it, I was emotional sometimes, but again, there's a, you experience it differently when you're, when you're sharing it with a person directly. And so that was, that was interesting, but I think it's important. This is what the music is about. The, the, the great pieces of classical music, they all express profound experiences and profound emotions and sometimes not profound emotions, sometimes just really playful things or silly things. Uh, and I thought that the best way of allowing or letting people feel like they were allowed to hear that in the music was to show them the way that I've experienced it and the way that I talk about it. And that's not to say everyone has to do it the same way, but it made sense to me and to my editor. Okay. And then, um, Actually, she has one more question, but I have a question is, how do you do the audio recording? And there's all these fine prints. I love the fine prints. I don't I don't understand why. OK, why did they take the fine prints and put them down there? It was so funny. Oh, the, it was hilarious. No. I mean, who was that composer? Oh, gosh, I, it's just not coming to me. The guy who was a total jerk. The oh, Wagner. 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 Thank you. The guy. Yeah, Wagner. I sat through one of his um, operas, I think, or whatever it was, uh, Valkyrie or what, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The Valkyrie. And it was torture. <laughs> it was like, just shoot me now. But yeah. And then you're talking about Wagner as this crazy guy, horrible person. And you're like, I'm going to write another book about this. And it was all in the fine print. <laughs> a lot of the funny commentary, mm -hmm. your your humor was down there. Like sometimes, like when I was reading the book, I just go down to the fine print and mix it <laughs> because that was just the funnest part for me. So I'm, really, I'm glad you read the footnotes because I know there will be people who probably don't. And um, yeah, no, I... So it was very tough. Some of the footnotes had been part of the text originally, and then we decided for the sake of flow to move them down. And other times it really was just 
yeah, it's this hierarchy. It, I think the same thing happens actually in, in the great works of classical music, which my book, I'm not comparing my book to a great work of classical music. Well, but I think that, that it's, I think it's important to have layers. So you have like the overall structure, which you want to be sound in terms of the, the arc and the organization. And then you also want the next level, the sentence level to be there. And then for me, there was this third level that was really fun to put in. It's kind of like a secret level for the people who are actually reading closely. And that's the footnotes. And I just, yeah, there were things that I wanted to say that I wanted to insert, but that felt a little bit too, I don't know, disruptive when you tried to read the whole paragraph, you know, maybe it didn't, maybe those, the footnotes didn't tie as well into the bulk or into the main part of what that section was, was talking about. So they got relegated to the footnotes, but it's also the way that I talk, you know, I interrupt myself all the time. I know, but it would have been (laughs) so much more fun. I mean, who was that, that singer who sang in a high C into the guy who was trying to attack her? I mean, like talk Mm. about like weapons, you know, when we talk about self-defense, I think Mm -hmm. about gouging someone's eyes out or you're like oh how to get out of this grip or that I would never think about hitting a high C as loud as you can in someone's ear I know but also you know we wouldn't be able to do it your your husband as an opera singer he might be able no he's a bass a bass baritone uh well maybe his his highest register though is it it won't have the the same you know exact effect but I imagine there's a lot of power there he could probably still do some damage to someone's eardrum but yeah, no, that story, that was a great story. That one ended up in a footnote, actually, because... It, yes! Yeah, yeah, because because it was only tangential to what the point was. So then, I know. But, but I hear you. I mean, it. I think it's worth, you know, it's a great story. And I think it, you could center a whole chapter around it for sure. It's just where it ended up in this, in this right. version of things, yeah. I know, I just have to tell anyone... You know, if you're reading this book, I think they should read the book. But if you're reading it, don't miss the footnotes because read the footnotes. (laughs) No, read the footnotes. I'm not one for footnotes. Usually, I don't know how or why. I just as I was reading your book, I'm going down and I'm reading these footnotes and I'm like, ooh, (laughs) ooh. And then the writer in me started going, is there a way I could add this in as, you know, and I started like, Let's add this. Well, you can't add the footnote here, but you can add it here. And I'm, but anyway, I loved, loved, loved the footnotes. But how did you stay motivated to sit down and write the whole book? Mm. So this motivation for me isn't as much of an issue because I feel like I'm really kind of crazy. <laughs> and I <have> to... <laughs> so I started playing the violin when I was two and a half and I practiced every day from that point on. And then, and then more and more, you know, so as I got older, it started with like 45 minute sessions and then it was two hours. And then eventually I was practicing six hours a day. So that's a lot of, you kind of wire yourself to have this like need for daily. It's like productivity but it's also obsessiveness. And I feel like that translated really well to writing. So uh, it was, I mean, sometimes it was such a challenge. I, I was writing during so many lockdowns. I have two young kids. That was really tough because I basically, during those times, I could only write when they were sleeping. And that's, you know, so that was a lot of late nights, but you just, 
if you have this weird thing in you that makes you work every day, you know, then, then it's easier to sit down. And again, this is a subject that I just care so much about. I just was excited to be working on it. And I think the writing part was one of the most fun things. I mean, it's stressful too, because you know, people are going to be reading it. What if you're not doing it justice? But it's also, I felt really privileged. And it's also part of the, um, you know, when you're doing nonfiction. So I had the deal before I fleshed out the whole book. So you know that someone's already bet on you and you really want to make good on that. And it's, uh, it was, I, I didn't find it hard to find the willpower to write. I found it hard to find the time to write uh, just with everything else that was going on. But how do you get someone to bet on you, like to bet on a memoir about mm -hmm. classical music or mm -hmm. anything, you know, it, it's because I was just literally just um, yesterday I was, I was, um, I asked the question for more for my friend because she's writing the memoir, not me. Mm -hmm. uh, I asked an agent like, well, here's, this is what's going on with her memoir. What would you suggest? Blah, blah, blah. And she was, she basically said that memoir is a tough sell. Mm. No, I believe that because again, there are so many people with unique stories that are valid and that are worth hearing. And um, I, I again, feel really lucky and privileged to have been able to write something that contains, it's not a straight memoir, you know, it's the hybrid between the guidebook and the memoir. So sure. I think that was part of it, that it had this sort of element of it's like partly educational, but it also has the narrative thread. So for me, you know, I think it's the publishing world felt for a long time to me, like something you just couldn't even like get into. I was writing articles and I had a couple of short stories published and, but those are, those are easier because you just pitch the editor directly. But when it comes to publishing, if you want a big publishing house, I don't think there's really a way that you can get to an editor unless you know the editor personally. And for me, it just, I've been amazed throughout the whole process that there are people who seem, who you kind of expect to help. And maybe those aren't the ones who end up helping, but then other people you don't expect to be helpful are amazingly generous and they open doors for you. And um, in, in my case, I had a friend and she knew that I was writing. And at that time I was writing a fiction project and she was like, you know what? I'm just going to put you in touch with my friend who's a literary agent and you guys can just talk. And that the literary agent, uh, Becky, she is a nonfiction agent. So she wasn't interested in my fiction manuscript, but we got to talking and we kept in touch. And, you know, she, it turns out is really interested in classical music because her family that she married into is really interested in classical music. So she's like my perfect target reader uh, because she has this sort of connection to it. She doesn't feel like she knows enough about it. And so when I approached her with this idea, she was like, hey, that sounds really cool. Actually, let's let's do some brainstorming. Let's, you know, work on it. And, um, you know, then she she just sort of left me with a brainstorming exercise. And a few months later, I came back to her with the exercise with a couple sample chapters and she really latched on and got excited. And I really think um, so. Yeah, if I think a literary agent is important, but it also has to be it's really specific. It has to be one who's passionate about your project and they're not going to do you any favors because they also wouldn't be doing you a favor if they took you when they're not excited. You know, this 
classical music is a hard sell. And Becky, she she ended up with so many great options when we when we set up our meetings. And it was only because she pitched the hell out of it, you know? I mean, I at that point, I think our proposal was strong, but it's also she had to exude this confidence in the project. And I think she can only do that if she really believes in it. So, so speaking of getting a literary agent, I had read when I decided, you know, I want to do this. I want to write a book like this. I had read that The Help. Do you know this book, The Help? I don't the, know if I'm... The Help. Yeah, the um, the novel. The yeah, movie. It became it, a movie. It's a, it's exactly. a novel. It's uh, I um, Let me see. It should be here somewhere. I know I have it somewhere. <laughs> right there. That's The Help. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if this is true, but I read on some, like forum or blog that it, that it was rejected by 62 literary agents before it found a home. I don't know if that is true, but I read that and I said, you know what? I'm going to send it to 63 literary agents. And in the end, <laughs> I, didn't have to. I didn't have to because it worked out with Becky and it just felt like, you know, again, she just happened to have this connection where she was like, oh my God. And she also, she has my exact sense of humor. So we just really hit it off and that felt great. But I was prepared to just go after one literary agent, then the next, then the next. And I really think in writing, that is what it takes if you want to get published. I think you just have to be ready to, to be rejected a whole bunch and to keep coming back and um, to make adjustments if they're needed. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> I like it how you were like, I was ready to write 63. <laughs> I was not going to be out, you know, because I'm not afraid of, this is also one of the things about classical music is that you, you're, we are trained so hard in this industry. People are so critical of us. People are always telling us like, no, you're playing it wrong. You're playing it wrong. And then you, and you fix it the way that one teacher wants it. And then the next teacher says, no, 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 that's wrong. Do it the other way. So you're really used to just the fact that everyone has different tastes. And everyone, you know, depending on which judge is in which mood you might get the position or you might win the competition or, you know, it's just so. And and so this was sort of my my background going into writing. And I thought, you know what, I don't think I'm crazy. I think I'm a good writer. I'm just going to wait until I find the right person. And again, I got lucky and it happened much, much sooner than I expected. But I would have I would have seen that through, I think. Okay, no, it's it's great because um, I talked to quite a quite a few authors and uh, the common thread is one of two things one is kind of like what you're saying friend and Becky and you know like Mm -hmm. some connection and you kept up with the connection and you worked through it kept up with the connection worked through it and got it ready and went that direction Mm -hmm. and the other side of things that I hear is I wrote and I queried and I queried and mm-hmm. I queried and are we getting the message? I queried. It's like <laughs> times, you know, it's like the exponential yeah. times that people query mm-hmm. and the numbers are sometimes, you know, like I used to hear in the thirties, like I queried 30 some people, then it went higher and I, I think I talked to an author who said like hundred something. Oh, oh my gosh. I might have stopped before that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know because it is kind of a hard, um, I think for any 
author, it is a hard thing to keep going and for someone to say no. Even mm. even like you're like like you say, you're a classical uh you're a violinist. I mean, you're used to practicing over and over and over again. And you're used to people telling you, no, do it this way. No, do it this way. No, there's too much vibrato. No, less vibrato. Do it this way. No, no, no. Try it. And you're so used to that. But at some point, some point somewhere, it's got to do damage within you. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's one of the things that I, that I think led to this kind of, I mean, it's an oversimplification to say burnout, but I guess it is a form of burnout. Definitely having people sort of dismiss your creative, your your voice. I definitely got to the point where I felt like it was easier to separate myself from my music, you know, to feel like I, I reached the point where I thought we didn't actually have individual voices that mattered in music because we... Um, you, you just sort of, I don't, it's not faking it, but you, you create an effect. You use your bow speed, you use your bow pressure, you use your finger pressure, your vibrato, your timing. These are all the tools you have to create an emotion through your music. And I got to the point where I was like, it doesn't matter if you actually feel it or if you connect with it, you just have to make it sound like you do. And that was partly because I also know a lot of musicians who are just assholes, but when they play, they sound like, like the best humans, you know? So I was like, if they can do it, then I don't need to be like genuine about my feelings <laughs> in order to emote. But I think it was also a protective mechanism because if if you invest in your interpretation, then it hurts a lot more when people tell you that it's not there, you know, that it's not right, that they don't like it, that someone else's was better. And yeah, of course that's hard to hear. But I would say that it was a mistake for me to also remove myself from the music as much as it was maybe easier to do. It definitely didn't help my connection with the violin. And I think ultimately it's one of the major factors that, that sort of destroyed that career path for me. So I, I think it's a very hard thing. It takes when people talk about tough skin, but I'm not sure it's actually a matter of tough skin so much as this inner resilience, right? That you, you can hear people say it, you need to take it into account their feedback because otherwise, you know, who knows, you might be missing a really valuable lesson, but you also have to just know in yourself somehow that what you have to offer is a value. And uh, that's really hard without recognition, but hopefully I think maybe for writers, if they can get enough small pieces published, maybe they get enough feedback from the world telling them, actually someone likes your work, you know, this person. And then, and uh, I think that's actually a really good argument for doing these little writing competitions, for submitting articles, for submitting pieces to journals, just so that you, it sort of, it keeps you inspired and also like helps you touch base with that, with, uh, I don't know, this, with the universe, you don't feel so isolated from it. You know, you're not just sitting there writing something that you don't know if anyone's ever going to read. I think that would be difficult, maybe also liberating, but difficult. Too. If you win the competition or if you get your short stories published, because even publishing short stories, mm -hmm. it's not like, oh, I sent it and they published it. No, there is a journey to even that baby step. 
Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's tremendously difficult to get. I didn't mean to make it sound like, you know, I, so I was lucky to have some pieces published in some, some nice places, but I also got rejected so many times. And, and sometimes it was those same pieces that I got published that were rejected from other places. And uh, most of the time I didn't get rejected. I just got completely ignored. And that also doesn't feel good. But then if you keep going and if you keep looking for the right pitch and, you know, honing your, your, your pitching game and also thinking about like, what can I write that someone would want to read and that someone would want to publish because it's not just about expressing what you want to express. Then eventually, hopefully the world will give you a little bit of a, you know, like, Oh yeah, yeah, you're doing great. We'll give you this little one, you know, and then maybe it works out someday with that little bit of encouragement that you turn it into something bigger. Right. It's just, I can't imagine what you went through. I, I read most of your book. I, I didn't read that last. I, I think I'm about 20 pages to finish, but <laughs> I think the last part is explaining classical music and all of that. But it's just, it's just crazy how much effort goes into essentially losing your soul. I like, <laughs> like, you're like, I'm like, I am a vileness. I'm working so hard just so I can give up my soul. I'm like, what? <laughs> well, I, I don't mean it that way, but you know what I mean? Like, it's no, it almost does. It like feels a- like that. Yeah, sometimes it really does. And, and I mean, I so I mentioned in the book also this legend of Paganini that people say that he sold his soul to the devil so that he could play the violin right. better than anyone ever had. And I really feel like it's a metaphor. It's just like what every violinist goes through, you know? But, but again, there are some people who find a way of doing it in a way that really nourishes their soul. And I don't, I was not one of those people. It just didn't work out for me. And yet here I am writing what I think is a really soulful book about classical music. So I I do feel like my, my journey in the end has nourished my soul. It's just a lot of it sapped it as well. So it's, um, it depends on what phase you're in and how you how you deal with it. And I really needed that break that I took in the middle because I think I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to write this book like right after I quit the violin. You know, I needed some time. So right. So I am uh, curious. So there's a section in your book where you talk about expensive violins <laughs> yeah. and what they were selling for now. Since I play the violin, I mean, used to, like a child, and, uh, don't play well enough, all that stuff. But I kind of know, okay, the expensive. I've heard the word Stradivarius before. I mean, I, I can even call it a Strad, you know, like, whoa, I'm so cool. I can, I can shorten it to Strad. <laughs> like, okay, that's kind of where I'm at. But then I'd heard of Amati mm-hmm. as like a top mm-hmm. violin Mm-hmm. and how expensive it gets. I had not heard of the Yesu. The Da Jesu. Oh, yeah. The Jesu. Yeah, the Jesu. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. never heard of it. So tell me more because I'm just curious. So I went to the Musical Instrument Museum mm-hmm. in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to go there, but if if you even have a half a day in Phoenix, that's the one place you should go. Okay. okay. It's it. the Musical Instrument Museum. Phenomenal. I, I would spend three days there. But anyway, mm-hmm. when I went, I don't know if they have it now, but when when 
I went, they had a um, exhibition of top violence. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the two violins that they were talking about mm-hmm. were obviously Strads and Amadis. And they even had like, like where you hear the two violins being played and people are like uh, talking about what the sound is like and how many colors of music can you produce with a Strad versus an Amadi. And then I read your book and then you have the Dutchies. Yes. Yeah. Um, it is interesting to me. I also get the feeling that even, even within conservatories, if you're not a string player, I think you've all, everyone's heard of a Strad and right. I can understand why Amadi would also be up there. And for some reason, Del Jesu hasn't been as, as well publicized. But if you are a string player, then Del Jesu is right up there with Strad. Then it's one of the, the first names. If you think of old, expensive Italian instruments, then it's Strad, Del Jesu, right back to back. Really different instruments, but very much peers. I don't know why, why Del Jesu's never got the same, like... PR boost that Strads did. Uh, it might have something to do with. I also mentioned in the book that you know Strads are are visually so perfect and beautiful. Uh, it could be that people are just like the that pristine quality that they have. Maybe that's what attracts them. And and Amadis are often decorated, so it could also be from a visual standpoint that they they've gotten that extra, maybe they've been photographed more because of that. Um, and I, but I can't explain it because again, within the industry, Del Jesus are, are, well, they're, they're much more expensive than Amadis, but I think they're also as a whole much stronger. They're just, for me, if I could have, if I could choose a make, it would for sure be a Granary Del Jesus. Really? And actually of all the violins that I've played, the Del Jesus that I had from Juilliard was my favorite. So I, I got to play, from Juilliard, I got to play a Strad for a period of almost a year, I think, and a Del Jesu for several months as well. And they also gave me a Guadagnini, which is like, it's not at the same level, but it's still like 600,000 or more. So it's like a minor still a detail. Great, yeah. Minor detail, yeah. Still a great sure. violin. And that was really lovely. And I've also, I, one of the most fun concerts that I gave was with this expert whom, who, who helped me with this chapter, uh, Florian Leonard. Uh-huh. And he put our recital together with, I think it was like two strads and like two Del Jesus and a Guadagnini. And I don't know if there was an Amadi, but there was maybe a Ruggiero. I, I'm not sure what the other instruments were, but I played a different violin for each piece. And that was just one of the coolest things. And it's also a different kind of thing because the measurements are slightly different. So you have to adjust really quickly. You know, as you change instruments, the the the, the way you play each violin is different. So you really have to be adaptable or you have to adapt rather. And I struggled a little bit with some of them, but I also felt like, I mean, it's like being in a candy shop, you know. <laughs> right. How do, you, how do you mean the measurements are different? I mean, I thought, you know, you've got the board and well, they, there's so they certain... Are, they should be the same, but there are these tiny, like, you know, where the bridge is placed makes mm-hmm. a difference because right. then it changes the length of the string. And, right. and also, you know, sometimes the, it's just, even though there are standardized measurements, it's still like, we're talking about tiny, you know, the, the, 
the difference on a fingerboard on a violin between an in-tune note and an out-of-tune note or between hitting the exact perfect sound point and hitting something that sounds like fuzzy and not so focused, it's just like a fraction of a millimeter. So even, even with measurements that should be the same, they don't feel the same. It just, there are violins that feel similar, you know, and a lot of them, it translates well, whatever setup you have, but there are also violins that feel totally different and really weird to play. So I would say in this case, they were mostly quite similar and I didn't have any huge issues transitioning, but I definitely felt the difference. See, fraction of a millimeter. That's why I play horrible. <laughs> I make like millimeters of difference. I'm like, why does it sound totally off? Like it's not even the right note anymore. I'm like, where is this note? I can't do this. Like I, by the time we, I think my progression of violin was, I think I got to third position. Okay. This is like, I'm talking baby steps, right? Yeah. You know, like beginner, like before beginner, pre-beginner violin. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> if there's a pre-beginner step. So mm-hmm. I think I got to third position. And I think when I was practicing, I was eh, getting there. And mm-hmm. then I think she tried to get me to second after that. And that's when I kind of quit. And I was like, second position is really hard for everyone. Second position. So like if you had gone one position further, it would have gotten easier again, because third position, you're up against the body of the violin. So you right. her second position is that one is hard, even after Juilliard. <laughs> Okay, well, it's good to know because I was like, okay, I can go, I can slide up to third. Mm. And then she wants me to slide to second. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're not playing the right note. Well, because I don't know where the note is. Because you're lost, you're at C. You don't have, yeah, it's just in in the murky middle. I, I totally get it. Second position is, yeah, it's a bitch. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you know, and that's what, and then I stopped practicing and it was just a lot of, I could never do what you do. Because I'm I'm totally like squirrel brain. <laughs> I cannot sit and focus for like you said six hours a day. That's crazy. Okay, you take breaks, but yeah. Yeah, but still, like I would I would play for 15 minutes and then I would take an hour break. <laughs> it doesn't, it just it's unfortunate. I can't, but that's just me in the violin. But you know, it's just um it's really neat though for as far as music goes, like reading your book. And because I have played the instrument, it kind mm-hmm. of makes more sense. Like I could connect more mm-hmm. with your book mm-hmm. and with your experiences. I felt more so than I think if I had zero mm-hmm. experience with the violin, I don't know how I would connect with your book. I'm really curious. I would love for someone with no musical experience or knowledge or anything like basically a virgin to read your book (laughs) yeah I'm very curious for that to happen too I have very few people in my life who have no experience with classical music um who who have read it I my husband has read it but he is also not allowed to (laughs) criticize my book so (laughs) I don't know I mean he gave me really valuable feedback but I can't really trust his compliments. So I will be curious to see, um, you know, we've started getting some early reviews that have been really nice, but I have no idea whether the people writing them have experience with classical music or not. They don't usually mention that in the review. So. Right. Right. 
So um, how long did it take you to um, write? So it is, the, I, they gave me uh, almost a year. Um, I think it was 11 months from when we signed the contract to when it was due. And some of that time was mapping it out. It wasn't just writing, but that's part of the process. So I would say about a year for the, the best first draft, first draft. And I submitted it. And then, you know, we did some, like one big round of editing where my editor made some longer or some, some more large scale comments. And that was, I think she had it for a few months and then I had a couple of weeks to like get it, you know, to revamp it. And then, and I would say that that was when most of the writing happened, but then, so th I, that was between uh, August and like a year and a few months later, I don't know, maybe October or something of last year but then you, there are more so I've still adjusted it since so you've probably read the, the galley I yep, guess that's what yeah. I have though and so there have also been changes since the <laughs> yeah exactly we but we have the same book yeah uh -huh. um so there have also been changes since because as you do like copy editing and then some proofreading and blah 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 then it does feel like things want to be adjusted and so I I made probably more changes than people wanted me to but so, but so there is isn't. a difference between the galley and the final book yeah like, for sure how for much sure. of it like you said like would you say it's not a whole chapter is it like a few pages a few paragraphs yeah I so it's it's mostly like little wording things. Okay. Um, but there are a couple of places. So the listening lists are different. Okay. There are, there are, there's a lot of overlap. They're similar, but there are some that I've either tightened or replaced pieces with. It just took me forever. I had so many ideas for the listening list. There are so many pieces that I want people to hear. So it was very hard for me to come up with like what I felt like was the right balance. There are so many considerations because you want contrast. It can't just be my favorite pieces because then, I don't know, I have my own tendencies, right? So I want it sure. to be, an, I want there to be enough there for people who are different than I am to like as well. And uh, then and then also in the, in the final chapter, I rewrote some, I think the ending isn't, it's the same ending, but it's the wording changed quite a lot. And also I added in a whole pretty long section actually well hold on hold on <laughs> I have the finished book I haven't read the finished oh, book they they send it to me like I got this and then one day I get this book in the mail and I open it I'm like oh and it's the hardback it's declassified and I was like oh okay I yeah I have the finished copy so oh that's great because my I, husband I wants have, to read I don't it. have the finished copy yet <laughs> my, my husband wants to read it oh I would be uh, I apologize for making fun of opera singers, but I make fun of everyone. You have No, to it's fine. We were, we were actually laughing because there was some jokes that I wasn't completely getting. Like some of the music jokes, I'm like, hey, Brad, tell me. So, uh, you know, you were like violist jokes, right? Yeah. Uh, violist, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And he just bust out laughing. You know, like, and I'm like, wait, 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 explain this to me. And he's like, well, this and this. It was like the, um, what was it? Who do you uh, run over first? Oh, yeah. 
the, the conductor or the violist. Yeah, but you want to get down to business first, and so you business whatever, before pleasure. So the business conductor. before pleasure, right? <laughs> and I, it took me a while to really like business before pleasure. Okay, got it. Okay, like it was just like ah, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah we were laughing about the the soprano joke about the conductor telling the orchestra, oh, yeah. you know, you know, add these notes, delete these notes, change the key, do this, do this, do this, do this. And maestro, what do I do? And it's like, no, just you keep going. <laughs> like, you keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So many good music jokes. But yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think it's fair to make fun of singers because I love them so much, actually. You know, operas, I think, probably my favorite medium to listen to right now or to watch certainly in person so I feel like that gives me a certain license to make fun of them if I want to but maybe we'll see how the singers react <laughs> right 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 it'll be it'll be interesting to I wish we could like break up your book reviews mm. with like hey how much musical experience do you have rate yourself are you a five or a zero you know one and then break up the reviews of people with one-star music experience. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Wouldn't it be? Yeah, mm -hmm. see, I'm I'm in the science, so I'm kind of like, can you tell? <laughs> like, <laughs> No, that's great. That's a really, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I will certainly be, yeah, interested to see how different people with different levels react. Also, how I know there are a lot of musicians who will end up reading it and I don't know how they're going to feel about it because I am kind of irreverent and sometimes critical about certain things in the industry and the way that the music's presented. And I know a lot of people share my views, but I also can imagine that there are a lot of people who don't. So we'll see whether they are excited that I was open about <laughs> my opinion or not. I think, I mean, I'll tell you, when the, when the book first came in, the ARC mm -hmm. came in, and it was there and it was just there. So my husband loves to read. So he picked it up and I'm walking by and he's just busting out, laughing out loud. And he's just reading through this, he's laughing out loud. He's like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. Oh my God. And I was like, look, I will, after I'm done with this, because I have to interview Ariana, let me read the book. After I'm done, you can put it in your stack. He has a stack, like he reads an order, put it in your stack and you can read it. Well, so he was like, okay, well, then the finished copy came in. I'm like, here you go. I'm still looking at this. Here's your finished copy. He took uh -huh. it. He put a stamp on it. He's like, it's my book. <laughs> so, so that's that's good. That, that's, that's very great. good. So um, yeah, no, I, um, I want to thank you. But before we close, is there anything you want my listeners you want to tell my listeners anything that we haven't talked about or something you're like I wish she asked me about this I wish we talked about this um I no no I don't I mean I can't think of anything right now I'm sure after we hang up I'll be like oh damn I should <laughs> <laughs> but um no I bet you know since we're talking anyway about musicians and how they might react I am I'm curious because I think that at different phases in my life, I would have responded differently to reading this book. So I feel like, you know, if I read it now, I think it was really funny and great for music. If I'd read it during my sort of darker, more purist period at Juilliard or right after, then I think I might've been really like, I don't know, 
like, who is this person? Like, how dare she talk about Beethoven like this? Like, how dare right. she? Um, so, so I, I am like, in some ways, kind of bracing myself for that karma and for that, like for the, the version, the younger version of me to come and like bite me in the ass. But I hope that what's clear from the writing is that all of the things that I've written stem from my just unbearably deep love of this repertoire. And so when I make fun of something or when I criticize something, it's only because it's only because I care about it so much and because I love it. And because I, I hope that people know for me, it was a little stifling to, to not be able to feel, to let myself feel those things, you know, to, to not examine how I was presenting myself, how I was presenting music, how music was being received by so much of the world. And I, I think that that all contributed to why I felt like I couldn't go on in music. And so what I really want with this book is to create air around it so that people feel like they can listen to it with the same freedom that they listen to other kinds of music. Uh, I also explain, you know, maybe if you want to get the most out of it, you don't listen to it in exactly the same way. Maybe it needs a little bit more focus, but that doesn't mean that you can't also listen to it while jumping around. I mean, I do that with my kids all the time. We just like have dance parties to some of these pieces. And uh, I don't, I, I just, I just want it to be, I want to make it clear in, in, you know, through the way that I've written it, through the fact that I'm not always treating it like this holy thing on a pedestal, that it is, it's relevant. It can fit into people's lives and that it is, yeah, it's just like a beautiful thing that you can enjoy. So why wouldn't you enjoy it? You don't have to, it's not like you're marrying it. You don't have to like exclusively commit to listening right. to classical music forever or become a classical music listener. It's just something that I think could enrich a lot of people's lives as an option and as something to spend some time listening to, thinking about, learning about. I just want to, yeah. I want to bring some of that fun back that I felt when I was a kid that I kind of lost sight of when I was more serious about it. And I want, I, I want to, yeah, bring that into people's experiences with this genre. That is good. That's, that's beautiful. So uh, that's a great note to end it on. So I uh, just want to say thank you so much. Well, thank you too. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for today. Stay tuned at the very end for some promo information about the book Declassified. What's upcoming for the podcast? Honestly, I don't know. Book Club got postponed to a week after next due to my time constraints, so we shall see. I'm always thinking about this podcast. Please be patient with me. Now, before I go, if you loved this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. I'm also on Clubhouse. Look me up by name. I'm on TikTok. My tag is at Dr. Shnaz Ahmed. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. 
My website is shanazahmed.com that is s h a h n a z a h m e d.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. Just as Benjamin Dreyer demystified grammar and style for a new generation of readers in Dreyer's English, Ariana Warsaw-Fanroch interprets the exclusive language of classical music for the rest of us with style, verve, and a dose of humor in Declassified. G.P. Putnam's Sons on sale October 11th, 2022. Warsaw-Fanroch's life long fascination with classical music has taken her through Juilliard and into the shiny world of symphony halls and international concert tours. She's loved classical music her whole life, but she's also hated classical music her whole life. After all, if you can like Beyonce without liking Bieber, you can certainly like Brahms without liking Bach, especially since they were born 148 years apart. And the thing we call classical music is really just centuries of compositions shoved into one hodgepodge of a genre. In Declassified, Warsaw Fenrock blows through the cobwebs of elitism and exclusion and invites everyone to love and hate this music as much as she does. She offers a backstage tour of the industry and equips you for every listening scenario covering the seven main compositional periods, even the soul-crushingly depressing medieval period, a breakdown of the instruments and their associated personality types. Apologies to violists and conductors. What it's like to be a musician at the highest level. It's hard. How to steal a Stradivarius and make no money in the process and when to clap during a live performance. Also when not to. Throughout this informative romp, Warsaw Fanrock weaves in and out of her own story from picking up a violin at the age of two to breaking her $7,000 bow as a tween to working the wedding circuit as a struggling conservatory student and hunting for razor blades in the Juilliard practice rooms. The world of classical music comes alive as we learn not just what it is, but how it is lived and experienced by musicians today. Warsaw Fanrock's unique viewpoint as a lauded musician, as well as her unfiltered honesty and entertaining voice result in a fresh, unexpected take on the once stuffy, generally shrouded industry. This also comes with an inherent and carefully crafted ability to provide insight on the seven major periods of the classical knot, genre, and how to find the ones you like, common stereotypes of the industry from type A violinists to the rowdy, bald, brass-playing fraternity brothers of the orchestra, when to clap and when not to during a live performance, how to decipher the obnoxiously complicated and sterile titles you will sometimes encounter the top classical music needle drops in movies from Raging Bull to the Shawshank Redemption 
to the Silence of the Lambs, the craziest superstitions in the classical canon, like Beethoven's haunted hair and the famous curse of the Ninth Symphony. The must-list and short-list, because we're talking about a thousand years worth of music and not all of it was created equal. Declassified cheekily demystifies the world of high art while making the case that classical music matters, perhaps now more than ever. Few of us will perform with Yo-Yo Ma or Joshua Bell, walk the hallowed halls of Juilliard or ascend to classical music's inner circle, but Warsaw Fan Rocks welcomes us into this world with sparkling, engaging prose and assures us that there is no one right way of getting started when it comes to the appreciation and enjoyment of this amazing repertoire, except perhaps by reading this book.